0: how would you describe it i mean it is just i think it's one of the most you know it's it's a bit like a, 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 an archaeological dig you know the entire house were just layers and layers and layers of stuff piled on top of each other you know there's a sort of fascination to it just that you are you are literally walking through history and 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 it is incredibly lively. It's not one of the you know it, it, so many houses are, are, are built at one moment, furnished at one moment, decorated at one moment, and then they but then they've generally been put back to a specific historical moment, and they look terribly sort of fresh and newly done. And where, whereas this house is, is is just it's any number of different historic epochs all piled into one
1: extraordinary thing. There really isn't a house. It's like it's like an Oxford College or something. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. My guest today isn't a singular personality, but a place that has personality in spades, Knoll. Located on 1,000 acres in Kent, Southeast England, Knoll is an architectural gem unlike any other. In the 15th century, the Archbishops of Canterbury remodeled an earlier home in the Jacobean style. Later on, Henry VIII hunted there, and from 1603, it became home to the Sackvilles, whose family has inhabited the estate for more than 400 years. After centuries of wealth and influence, the house today is filled with layers and layers of treasures, from old master paintings to priceless furniture from the Stuart era. Noel's connections to the culture extend famously to the 1920s, when Virginia Woolf wrote Orlando, which features a character who is based on Virginia's lover, Vita Sackville-West. More on that later. As early as the 18th century, visitors have come to Knoll to gaze and admire at all of it. And in the modern post-war era, the National Trust of the UK has preserved and run the estate. This magnificent home has now been documented in a new book from Rizzoli called Knoll, A Private View of One of Britain's Great Houses. Photographed like you would any interior in, say, the world of interiors, it was lovingly and artistically captured by interior designer Ashley Hicks, who you'll meet later in the program. But first, I speak with Robert Sackville-West, seventh baron of Sackville and the 13th generation of his family to call no home. I wanted to ask Lord Sackville what it was like growing up in such a place, his favorite objects found there, and if some of the rumors about a necklace belonging to Marie Antoinette are to be believed. I caught up with him from where else, Knoll. Your family has been a, a caretaker of, of sorts of, of Knoll for 400 years. So, But I'm curious what, what your personal earliest memories are uh, of of Knoll House. So the family, as you say, has, have been here for 400 years since 1603,
2: 1604. My first memory is uh, really coming here when my parents moved into a wing of the house when I was about nine years old. So uh, for me, that was, I didn't know the house very well before then. This was a sort of revelation uh, coming to this, you know, massive and in those days quite um, undeveloped, quite dilapidated in parts. Uh, Knoll is a massive, massive house. It's 365 rooms, 52 staircases, a so-called calendar house. And to, as a nine-year-old, be able to roam around this place was uh, magical.
1: And, you know, is it hard to be uh, a child in a place like that where you have to constantly uh, make sure you're not, you know throwing a ball in the house into, <laughs> into a portrait of your ancestor?
2: Um, Not in those days. I think it's probably harder being a, a child now because there are more, you know, health and safety is, is more of an issue now and we would just wander around the roofs of this place all day uh, long. As to, you know, throwing balls about the place or indeed, you know, playing cricket um, in the corridors of Knoll, uh, my parents were quite relaxed about this. And actually, we didn't break um, uh, very much at all. Um, and I think that is possibly because they were so relaxed. Uh, you know, we were never nervous about or never encouraged by nerves to, um, to, 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 to um, you know, um, unconsciously create any form of damage.
1: <laughs> and And can you explain t- to listeners like what comprises Knoll House today and the estate or uh, you know uh, in terms of the buildings and and the grounds? Okay, well, Noel, um is uh, this um,
2: Jacobean uh, palace really, uh, uh, a large seventeenth um, uh, century uh, or principally. Uh, 17th century mansion standing in um, a, a 1000 acre deer park you know and the deer that roam this park till to, to this day are you know descendants of the the fallow deer who were here four or five hundred years ago you know even before the family were here so the house sits in a park and then is surrounded by uh, an ever decreasing, um, uh, estate of um, some farmland, some uh, cottages, some um, uh, properties on the uh, periphery. But Knoll actually since 1946 has been owned by uh, the uh, National Trust, this charitable organization uh, which cares for uh, uh, hundreds of of properties and, uh, landscapes in, uh, England who, and who have been absolutely instrumental in uh, saving and maintaining this house. But in recognition of the gift in 1946 by the family of the house to the national trust, the family were allowed to, um, uh, have a lease on large areas of the house. And that's where, um, I and my
1: family now live. Uh, and what sort of, uh, proportion is sort of your element of it versus the sort of public areas? Uh,
2: I should think the bits that are still uh, within, as it were, the family lease account for maybe um, um, a half perhaps of the uh, total surface area, but the area of Knoll is absolutely uh, uh, massive. So actually, the bit of Knoll that is opened, the proportion of Knoll that is actually opened to, to visitors, and it's quite a long tour, even as it is, is probably around,
1: I should think, a quarter of the total surface area. There's also quite considerable grounds, and there's also a deer park. That with. Uh, and tell me a little bit about this deer park, which I think it's a lovely way to kind of connect with the history of, uh, of, of Knoll and, and how it sort of began.
2: Well, before um uh, Noel came into the hands of the Sackville family, that's my family um, it was it really began in the fifteenth century as an archbishop's palace. it was owned noel then by the Archbishops of Canterbury as their private uh, house and estate in the country and it was halfway between Um, Canterbury, where the cathedral is, and Lambeth Palace, which was the the house of the, or the seat of the Archbishops of Canterbury in London. So halfway between there. So Six archbishops of Canterbury lived and enjoyed uh, Knoll as a country estate between about 1450 and 1530. And it was they who were very keen, as archbishops were in those days, because they were pretty worldly people, they were very keen on hunting. And so they introduced the deer hunting, which was popular in the sort of 15th century, to the park um, at Knoll. So the deer were then Uh, uh, there uh, to be hunted and obviously nowadays they are simply there
1: to be uh, not to be hunted but to be uh, enjoyed and to look beautiful my gosh um uh how, do you, do you know how many how many are there in these state um the at the moment i do know because we had a, a a sort of
2: informal count last week and there are about 400 and uh, 450 and there's a, and that is a relatively high number because the deer the fawns are born in may june so it's a relatively high number at the moment with because that accounts for all the the uh, the fawns and it will the sort of optimum number for the park is probably about 350, 400.
1: Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Janus AC. In the world of design, an appreciation of the outdoors is more important in our lives than ever before. Enter Janus AC. As a leader in outdoor furniture for more than 40 years, the brand combines unparalleled levels of craft and engineering to create works by the world's best designers and architects. From Andre Fu and Gabrielini Shepard, to Piero Lissoni, But beyond the incredible products and designs, Janus AC provides a level of service and expertise that's always best in class. Janus AC's Kyoto Alu collection balances the past and present, drawing its name and inspiration from Kyoto, Japan. Each piece resembles bamboo furniture, but is instead made from a lightweight powder-coated aluminum with hand-woven Janus fiber, a proprietary material designed to withstand the elements. The line, which includes rounded armchairs, sofas, ottomans, and side tables, features generous proportions and distinctive patterns that are elevated by luxuriously plush cushions. The eye-catching pieces come in a bright limestone and a dark lava and suit almost any mood for any outdoor space. Mai Tai, anyone? To create a unique outdoor living space that passes the test of time, make an appointment at your local Janus AC showroom or visit janusac.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-E-T-C-I-E dot com. And and your ancestor Thomas Sackville sort of acquired the house in the 1600s, which, you know, he must have been uh, quite the wealthy fellow and and a man of power to to do so. Um, What what do we know about him and, and how he came to be who he was?
2: Well, he was a uh, – his family uh, made sort of great strides both economically and politically during the 16th century, particularly under the reign of Queen Elizabeth, so that by the end of the 16th century, Thomas Sackville, who'd been a statesman for Queen Elizabeth I, was her Lord Treasurer. Uh, The Lord Treasurer is the sort of head financial Chief financial officer of the of the country as it was in those days. So he was wealthy in his own right. He had estates, he had uh, uh, small businesses, and so on. But he also uh, controlled the finances of the country. And in those days, if you controlled the finances of the country, you through commissions and bribes and goodness knows what, you made yourself a very wealthy man. And so he was probably one of the top ten wealthy. Um, nobleman in the early 17th century. And he acquired Knoll really to sort of show off and celebrate his
1: success and his wealth. And that's what he wanted Knoll to say for him. And and the house sort of, um, as it goes, sort of gained more wealth and status in sort of like three bursts uh, of history can you explain these sort of three, you know, pivotal moments? Uh, obviously, it's 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 a lot, but it like just these these kind of these three moments in history and and how they kind of set up the house that we now kind of see today.
2: So, really, there were three, as you say, there were three waves, as it were, of building and collecting at Knoll. and the first was Thomas Sackville, who took this sort of um, ramshackle um, medieval mansion owned by the archbishops of Canterbury and turned it into a renaissance palace and with with, with colonnades and um, um, uh, symmetry and wonderful galleries along which you'd process with superb and intricate carving and 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 uh, and plaster work and a house actually fit for a visit from a king so that's what Thomas Sackville does primarily about a hundred years later uh, one of his descendants, again, the royal um, uh, connection uh, pays off, because um, Charles Sackville, uh, the sixth Earl of Dorset, is Lord Chamberlain to uh, King Charles the um, Second, and then to King William the Third. And one of the perquisites—that sort of rewards—perks of office as Lord Chamberlain is you could dispose of all the royal. Furniture from the royal palaces when it was thought to be out of date or shabby. Mm. And so he acquired for himself the finest collection of royal Stuart furniture in the world beds, chairs, suites from Hampton Court. Um, uh, Whitehall Palace. He was a vintage collector. He was. <laughs> and, you know, this is now an absolutely extraordinary... Knoll is probably... is unique for its collection of Royal Stuart Furniture. So that's what he did for Knoll. And then about a hundred years after that um, uh, John Frederick Sackville, who the third Duke of Dorset, uh, late uh, 18th century sort of... Uh, Grand Seigneur goes on grand tour to to Europe, particularly Italy, and acquires um, uh, wonderful old masters, and he commissions uh, portraitists of the day like Joshua Reynolds or um, uh, Thomas Gainsborough, uh, wonderful late 18th century portraits as well as the old masters. So there are these three principal um, uh waves at Knoll, the building by Thomas Sackville, or rebuilding, and then two waves of
1: collecting. From the uh, John Frederick Sackville, the, the person who went on the, the grand tour, Is there? A, I'm curious if there was a, a famous, is there a piece of his that he acquired that is your one of, maybe a personal favorite of yours?
2: There probably is in that, I mean, this is, I'm not talking about a particularly Uh, valuable piece necessarily, but there is, when you go to Knoll and you go into the Great Hall, which is one of Thomas Sackville's um, uh, reconstructions, magnificent, carved, uh, early 17th century green, lovely uh, plasterwork ceiling. But at the foot of the Great Staircase, just after that, there is a a statue of, of, of a naked reclining woman And that woman is um, uh, Giovanna Bacelli, who was an Italian ballerina, who was the mistress of the third Duke who we've been talking about, and who lived at Knoll for five years or so in the 1780s, and they had an illegitimate son together. And she uh, is a sort of, uh, has always been a figure of great sort of uh, interest and, as it were, romance. Uh, at Knoll. It's a wonderful um, uh, sculpture, which was actually off when when the third duke settles down uh, to respectability and marries an heiress, as they all did. His mistress, Giovanna Bacelli, is pensioned off. And this statue that you now see at the foot of the Great Stairs was for a 100 years consigned to the attics where it gathered dust until an, a subsequent generation decided that she should, in some way, be rehabilitated.
1: Ah, uh, I see. So the ish, <laughs> the, the quite uh, nude uh, reclining marble did not. Today, it's under the grand staircase, essentially, or it's right in front of you. It has been and has been perhaps for the past hundred years in the intervening hundred
2: years, the Victorian era. And certainly when the third duke's wife was around, obviously, the former mistress gets packed off to the uh, to the dusty attics.
1: Uh, okay. All right. Well, at least, uh, we know the wife had a little bit of power in the house. Um, cause it, it is, it is, does not seem to me something that I would normally associate with an English, you know, manor house or something, uh, something of that. It's quite Italian and quite sort of, uh, alluring and, you know, sort of her backside is there and it's, it's very, very sexy and, Absolutely. Uh, and, and it's beautiful. I mean, it's amazing, but, um, uh, it definitely has the kind of vibe of, you know, this is my mistress, <laughs> exactly. And and when, when did the first visitors, you know, ever kind of enter the doors? Because it's not in the modern era, but I think way back in the day, it was always sort of bringing in people from outside areas to come and tour the house. When did that sort of begin?
2: Well, I think that even in the sort of um, uh, late 18th century. Um, you know, so-called gentlefolk could ask and and uh, whether somebody was around or whether they could have permission from the housekeeper to, sh- to to be shown round Knoll, you know. and In, you know, Jane Austen novels, they're always doing that sort of thing. But that was a gent- sort of, as it were, um, uh, middle-class uh, people. But the actual mass tourism starts at Knoll surprisingly early and indeed in the mid 19th century even in the mid 19th century ab- around um 10,000 visitors a year were going round the um, the house uh, at Knoll. Uh uh because uh the rooms that you now see as a visitor are much the same as the rooms they would have seen in the mid 19th century you know they have been showrooms in a way uh For hundreds of years and showrooms, in a way, to display this magnificent collection of Stuart furniture, which we were talking about earlier. Um, You know, now there are probably 150,000 visitors around the house every year. But actually, for it to be 10,000
1: in the 1850s was relatively uh, new then. And I read that there was a period where uh, someone who owned the house at the time tried to, you know, close it off and that there was a bit of a a bit of like a riot to kind of uh for people to kind of have access to this yeah.
2: well you wouldn't if you came to seven oaks today you wouldn't expect um this to be this small uh former market town now sort of um uh, suburban sort of almost a sort of dormitory to be um uh, a seat of you know the scene of a riot but you're absolutely right in um uh, 18 um uh, 84 the uh, lord sackville of the day uh um got fed up with these 10,000 visitors a year going round the house and he said that they sort of tore bits of you know tassels off the sofas and you know wouldn't stick to the prescribed routes and so on and so forth so first of all he closes the house and then he closes the park and the park has always been fairly free of access and he closed the gates of the park so preventing local townspeople from enjoying the park and these two things uh, precipitated uh, a sort of riot and you know on one june night in 1884 1500 people from seven oaks the local town congregated marched on uh noel house hurled abuse at Mortimer, Lord Sackville, who closed uh, it down, uh, burnt effigies of him um, threw stones at a few windows. And he was so uh, sort of uh, uh, shocked and probably rather frightened by this that he then left Knoll to live uh, in the Grand Hotel in Scarborough for uh, several months before, uh, you know, relations were restored and the park was... Uh, eventually reopened and...
1: Smart man. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, not, or not, as the case may be, uh, to have done it in the first place.
1: <laughs> a- and like all great estates, Knoll has sort of these these grounds, and um, a- aside from the deer park that we mentioned, um, how large is the, are those grounds?
2: The park where the deer is about a thousand acres. The gardens, there's a, a walled garden which is about um, 25 uh, acres. And then beyond that, there are uh, probably another 1,000 or so acres of, uh, of varying types of, uh, 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 of land. But I mean, the thing about Knoll, it was never, um, even in the 19th century, and certainly not in the 20th century, was it ever uh, large enough as an estate to be um, self-supporting. Um, uh, as in, as some estates were, and that is why, you know, by the time by the mid nineteen forties, why it was inevitable that something had to, to to give. And actually, what happened was the the family handed the knoll to the National Trust because it it simply did not have grounds and estates large enough to support this massive, great,
1: and in parts crumbling house. And of all the rooms that are open to visitors, uh, you know, there are many that are not. Um, and I'm sure some are quite removed from the velvet rope, you know, and if, I'm wondering, is there a particular room that you kind of wish, oh, if I could somehow create a, a teleportation device to bring somebody to one particular room that I just wish they could see that's sort of far from the tourist path, um, is is there a kind of um, nook or little piece uh, uh, like that, that you wish you could show more people that
2: is, that isn't currently on show. Yeah, that okay. is not on show. Uh, I mean, one of the, and I know from showing people around, you know, uh, friends and sort of um, uh, visitors on sort of uh, um, um, particular sort of um, uh, tours, private tours, that you know they love on they love the library, for example. I mean, the library is. Um, uh, a wonderful paneled room, eighteenth-century room with, um, you know, thousands of uh, of books, uh, you know, collection, a typical sort of gentleman's um, uh, book collection of the mid eighteenth-century uh, encyclopedias, travel books, natural history, um, dictionaries, topography, and so on. Uh, but it is a very, very peaceful, mellow. Uh, contemplative sort of room and it has that smell of uh, uh in a good way of old uh old books old leather uh a little bit of dust mixed in there uh, it's 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 uh it's a wonderful place so that's that's one of the rooms i would take people to
1: and is there uh is there someone who particularly built out that library in or is it added on over time
2: um i think that um the, the core of the library was probably acquired around the time that the library was fitted out in the mid-18th century. And therefore, it reflects the t- typical taste of, a, of, the, of that type of connoisseur in the mid-18th um, century. But there are obviously books from before and from afterwards that were acquired um, subsequently. So it's a, it's a, it's a good a, eclectic
1: uh, collection, I would say, overall. And we did mention that, um, aside from the art and the architecture, that furniture and design is such a huge part of, you know, the wealth of Knoll, um, speaking about royal furniture and things like that. Um, and But there's also French furniture from uh, a period when uh, one of the Sackvilles were uh, assigned to the court of uh, Louis XIV. Is that correct? Well,
2: there are two waves, exactly, of French collecting. One was when uh sacville uh went on an embassy to the court of louis the 14th the sun king and did acquire at least one magnificent table on uh on that uh, uh, and tour shares on that trip but there is also a wave of uh collecting of french uh furniture in the late 18th and early 19th century and particularly um Uh, two Sackvilles, or two Sackvilles uh, associated, people associated with the family, were ambassadors to Paris then. So the third duke, the third duke who we've talked about, whose mistress was Labacelli, he was ambassador to Paris, in fact, uh, just before the, or at the time of the French Revolution. And he collected, you know, a lot of Sèvres, porcelain, quite a lot of um, uh, furniture as well. And his successor at Knoll also acquired a lot of boule, sort of marquetry um, uh, furniture, wonderful boule clocks. So there are some superb pieces of late sort of ancien regime um, uh, French um, decorative, examples of French decorative arts at that time uh, uh, at Knoll. As there are actually quite a lot of houses of that type in England, it was very very fashionable French French
1: the taste for French things at that time. Noel is perhaps one of those historic homes that probably hasn't gotten too much attention lately, um, which is one of the great reasons to read this book. What would you attribute that to?
2: I, I think that um, I think Noel got a, oddly actually got a lot of exposure in the nineteen twenties. It was the um, it was the subject of um, um, uh, a novel by uh, the, the writer Virginia Woolf, and she wrote. Uh, yes, she...
1: I was going to ask about that, and right. uh...
2: so she wrote this um, uh, novel called Orlando, and Orlando is actually it, the, the the book is presented as a biography, and but it's a it's a sort of. Fake biography because it's a novel, but Orlando is this character who lives uh, over the course of four hundred years and changes sex and changes uh, career and is in fact um, Virginia Woolf's uh, portrayal of her former lover Virginia uh, Vita Sackville-West. But the backdrop to Orlando and the the place that you know features on every single page. With specific and tr- you know detailed and authentic references, is Knoll. So the nineteen twenties Knoll, partly through Orlando, got a you know a certain amount of uh, publicity. It then, I think, for the next hundred years, was slightly on a sort of back burner. Uh, people who who knew about it and visited it loved it, but it didn't have that um, uh, uh, quite that profile that it might uh, have had. And I think that two things have happened let's say, over the past 20 years, I think the National Trust decided that actually the profile of Knoll needed to be raised because they need, they wanted to celebrate, actually, rather more this, you know, extraordinary treasure house, really, and, um, and, and felt it was time that it should be celebrated. And I think that actually partly is it, it, sort of good timing for this book because what has been lacked before is, I mean, this this book is, you know, very, very big, has these very sumptuous uh, photographs. And so I think this is the, the first time that, uh, you know, an illustrated book of this size uh, scale has been published. So I hope that people, you know, and particularly people who perhaps who can't visit Knoll might get some uh, sort of... Um, um, and be able to appreciate at a distance then
1: something of the character of the place from from the book. In in Orlando, is there any are there references to the house in particular as the house you know like architecturally? No, like I mean that?
2: there are references to, for example, the the calendar house aspect, the three hundred and sixty five rooms. There are references to the fact that it's an archbishop's palace. There are references, in fact, very specific references to our. It was a private dining room, which is hung with pictures of writers of the late 17th century, like uh, Alexander Pope and um, John Dryden and Wycherley and Congreve. And there are specific references in Orlando to that room. And actually, there are references to Vita Sackville West's dogs. Uh, And, you know, every single page throws up a very specific uh, true
1: reference to Noel. Ah, And you mentioned uh, you know, myths and uh, rumors and things. Is there one that's probably the most fascinating or is there uh, you know, rumors and, and things about the house? You mentioned something about Marie Antoinette's necklace. but it, it, <laughs> What was that all about?
2: Well, that was about, I, I think what happened, okay, um, is that in the 19th century, certain figures became really popular, like Marie Antoinette. So because the third duke had been ambassador to uh, Paris at the time of the French Revolution, and before that had been commissioned by Marie Antoinette, who was a friend of his, to um, negotiate some jewelry purchase on her behalf, it became a myth that somehow he had acquired this piece of this necklace. And for some reason or other, that must be at Knoll. I think most unlikely. The other, There was another figure who was massively popular at this particular uh, moment, uh, as well as Montre- Mary Antoinette. It's uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, who is a figure of great romance in English history. And there is actually at Knoll this wonderful Calvary scene in the chapel, wooden carved Calvary scene, which, it is said, was given by Mary, Queen of Scots to Thomas Sackville. And the reason she gave it to him, it is said, is because he had been deputed to go to Fotheringay Castle, where Mary Queen of Scots was under house arrest, uh, had been imprisoned by her cousin, Queen Elizabeth, because Elizabeth thought she was a threat to the throne. And so Thomas Sackville has to go to Fotheringay Castle to break the news to Mary Queen of Scots that she had been sentenced to death. And apparently he did so with such sort of tact, tact and sympathy and understanding that Mary Queen of Scots gave the bearer of this particularly bad news a this Calvary scene, which is now in the chapel. Now, oh, is God. this, who knows whether, that, that it, it's totally plausible in that he did, Thomas Hatfield did go to Fotheringay Castle. He did break the news of her death. And this
1: Calvary scene is of that date. But whether she gave it to him or not, who can say? And with this book, and we'll be speaking with uh, Ashley Hicks pretty soon, what would you want people to really understand about Noel when they put it down?
2: Well, I think the the, the really new thing about the book, basically, and what's so good about it is Ashley's pictures, you know, because that is what, you know, the, the, a lot has been written about Noel, but actually Noel has not been um, photographed, illuminated so well before. So actually, I think that that's what uh, I would expect, and you know, hope people to be blown away by is the sheer sort of um, um, sumptuousness of the of the photographs. But I hope that they would then be drawn, as a result of those photographs, into reading the you know the introductions, the captions, the story that actually does thread throughout the book. So I hope that, at the, that, that, that if they were to do that and if they were to read it in any way and look at the photos in any way, um, uh, continuously throughout the book, they would come away feeling that they had had a, you know, a terrific visit, as it were, or the second best thing to a visit to Knoll.
1: Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Duravitt. Founded in 1817 in Germany's Black Forest... Duravit is the international authority on design-driven bathrooms. The company collaborates with leading designers from around the globe to create spaces that enhance your quality of life. One of the brand's daring visionaries is none other than rock star designer and former guest on this very podcast, Philippe Stark. The outspoken Frenchman's latest for Duravit is the White Tulip Collection. Inspired by the elegant shape of the flower in full bloom, the line contains everything you need to create your own Stark-designed domestic oasis from wash basins and tubs to furniture. The White Tulip Collection has various finishes, wood options, and a circular chrome handle as an eye-catching option that's oh so stark. And if this grand tourist had the space, he wouldn't hesitate to install his favorite element of the collection, the freestanding and perfectly round bathtub that can transform any bathroom into a nature-inspired spa. For more information on Duravit or to find your local distributor, visit www.duravit.us. Or call 888 Dervet. My next guest is the man who documented Noel for the book, Ashley Hicks. Although it feels odd to simply call him a photographer. Yes, he has a few books to his name, including one from 2018 on Buckingham Palace. But Ashley is first and foremost an accomplished interior designer of the highest order. And along with his family, keeper of his father's legacy, who is an absolute British decorating legend, the late David Hicks. Combining a keen sense of wit, fantastic taste, and a sense of adventure, he's the perfect person to bring Noel to life. I wanted to ask Ashley how he got started shooting interiors, why he loves Noel so much, and what the designer sees through the camera lens that others might not. And you're, you're very much a, a, a multi-hyphenate Uh, in the realm of design and how how do you describe your practice you know to people today in the year 2022 after the pandemic and when you meet somebody
0: i'm not sure i'd like to really to be honest (laughs) they look so confused very quickly um, really? Yes. I mean, to be, to, be, to be honest, you know, I'm what my, my father would have referred to as a jack of all trades and a master of none. And um, yeah, it couldn't be more true than, than, than about me, honestly, because I sort of try to do too many different things. And I'm sure I do them all rightfully badly. Um, but uh, but but there we are. The, the thing is that I, I didn't really enjoy working with people. I like working on my own. So I don't like to have, you know, I do, I, I'm not the sort of interior designer who has a huge office and, you know, studio of people. You know, once upon a time, I used to employ people and they used to always come and, and say it really irritating things like, what do we do now? Which, which would drive me nuts because I just wanted to get on with doing my own stuff. I didn't want to be nannying them and telling them what to do. And And they always did everything terribly badly, I thought you know, um so uh, I'm in- incapable of delegating so i've I've managed by the age of fifty nine which I am now, I'm a very old man i have managed to work out uh, so many different ways of doing stuff entirely alone that <laughs> that I have all these things that just sort of come at me, you know, weird, bizarre things like you know. The, the, this morning I was you know writing writing bits of text to go with some whiskey bottles bizarrely. Can you believe such a thing? Mm. And uh, you know David Hicks whiskey hello and then ah. and then I was doing you know uh, uh, when I, we finish this I have to go to the studio and finish up doing wall decorations for a sale at Sotheby's in Paris to you know, a, a, a Mongiardino originally house the contents being sold, and so they've asked me to do an updated Mongiardino decoration for the walls, ah. and the, you know, oh, and I right. just do all these ridiculous different things. You know, I'm about to have to do make 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 a carved fur-like vanity unit for some billionaire in San Francisco. You know, it's just mad, <laughs> <laughs> but I enjoy it because it means you know I use different different sort of i I hesitate to say skills but different different aspects of you know things i do um every day more or less and 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 it makes it great fun you know never get bored and and don't have all those endless frustrations of you know people coming to you and saying what do i do now
1: and when did you start photographing in a kind of a serious way
0: probably about six years ago something like that i remember i was somewhere and and for the first time, I noticed that you know whoever, whatever distinguished photographer was taking the pictures of some room I'd done, I, I noticed that he wasn't using you know film and a medium format Hasselblad camera. He was using a digital, a digital SLR, and I thought, well, God, I'm sure I could buy one of those and do it myself, and and so I bought one and 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 photographed. You know, started photographing my own interiors for my own you know viewing pleasure, I suppose, or publishing or something, and and then and then got sort of addicted to taking pictures of, of historic interiors just furtively with my phone. And then um, I suppose really really started doing that seriously with a proper camera um, because of Martina Mondadori, my lovely friend, who who you know, has that cabana magazine. And so she, um, I think, asked me to take some pictures of something. I think the Soane Museum maybe was the first thing I did for her. And so I went to the Soane Museum, which I always... Love, of course, and, um, and, and took was some- Was that your first sort of
1: professional gig as a photographer?
0: Maybe it was. Probably it was. I can't remember if they were even published. They must have been, mustn't they? But it was it, it was such a joy to, you know, I mean, it's just so exciting. And, and also what's so exciting is, to, is turning the lights off. Which is the one, one thing that, that that my real urge is just to you know turn the lights off and have daylight, because all of those rooms look so unbelievably beautiful with daylight, and and the moment you turn on electric light, that they, they look dreadful, you know, and and so it, it, it yeah, so I did, I did an entire book of Buckingham Palace, which normally looks monstrously hideous because they have all the lights turned on. And they're terribly, terribly bad, the lights. I mean, all the lighting, is it's all flooding the ceiling with light. It's that kind of thing. And and the time, I had turning the lights off there because all, all the lighting was installed in the sort of 1950s or something. And there are just banks and banks and banks of switches which do absolutely nothing. And then there's some secret little room where new switches have been put. So it was all rather complicated. And then every time I got everything looking absolutely perfect in some room, somebody from the Lord Chamberlain's department or the Master of the Household's office would run in and turn all the lights on because he was showing
1: around some VIP. Anyway, <laughs> oh gosh, and and how did you first discover Knoll? Like, when was last? When was the? How did you connect with with this property? Exactly. Um, no, I first discovered
0: it when I was a student, and a friend of mine was a friend of Robert's sister, um, and. And so, you know, I sort of became vaguely friends with Robert's sister, and they had a party there, and so I went. And and this is, I was probably twenty-one or twenty-two or something like that, and and I think it was in the. It was either in the attics or in the cellars. I can't remember which. But I can't remember which it was, but it, it was nowhere near the staterooms. And, and so I, I didn't see any of the house, which, of course, I knew from photographs and from the sort of descriptions of it in, in Orlando. You know, that wonderful Jenny Wolf book. Um, and, and so I longed to go and see it um, and, and then never did until my, my daughter, Angelica Hicks, um, went to Sevenoaks School. You know that the, the gate to Knoll goes more or less through the school in fact, they have to cross the drive to get to the classrooms um and, and so every time I go pick her up, I'd sneak off to to Noel and look round those beautiful rooms um before and and then um and then Charles Myers, who's the publisher of of, of Rizzoli, who I'm sure you know I do. um was was it, was it was here having lunch with Martina and me. And, and he says, we're sitting, the three of us, and he looks at Martina and he says to Martina, can you think of anybody who'd be good to photograph? No. And so I sort of look at him and I look at her and there's <laughs> sort of silence for a bit. And then I say to her, do you think that he's <laughs> trying to avoid asking me? Or is he... you <laughs> know Asking me in a roundabout way. And of course, I was so excited at the idea of photographing Noel. And then it, it was incredibly fortuitous because literally at that moment, I mean, sort of a week later or something, COVID arrived and, and so locked us all down. No one was allowed to go anywhere or do anything or, you know, all of that. Um which obviously was it was terrible for many people. And I obviously feel very sympathetic towards all those people who had a terrible time. But I, I and I feel a bit guilty because I had a fantastic time. Because as a result of that, um the National Trust, who who, you know, show the house to the public, um, the state rooms, weren't able to do that. And so they you know, normally it's 365 days a year. There are there are crowds of tourists going round all the rooms, and all of the shutters are closed, and there are only artificial lights, and, and the great state beds are encased behind glass, and so it's it's really quite difficult. You know, it's quite difficult to see it when you go around, um, and even more difficult to take photographs of it normally when there are visitors, and so by this great good fortune, and they're called COVID. Um, you know, I was able to go and, and open up all the shutters and remove the glass panels and get really up close to all of the extraordinary things like the state bed made for King James the II and with sort of gold and silver embroidery. I mean, it's so unbelievably beautiful and, and you simply can't see it
1: normally. So you were you had a I mean, the, the pressure of time has probably taken off of you. Uh, you know, instead of having to cram a shoot into a few days, how how long did it take you to shoot the whole house? Because it's a, it's known to be a quite large. Yes,
0: indeed. But but it's also it's not just um, you know that that ordinarily the pressure would be a few days. the, the, the pressure would be a few hours. Because you'd have to, you know, they would open the house to the public at 10 and close it at 3, perhaps. So, you'd be able to shoot from th- 3.30 onwards. or until, And then, of course, they'd want to leave and lock it up, you know. So, in, in fact, it was only really possible because of COVID. It, it is li- wow. literally, literally a, a, a book thanks to COVID. <laughs> also, because it, it's a lot of work removing the shutters. And all of that. I mean, I'm sure they must photograph it all the time, and they must be able to do it, you know, in a way. But I, but I don't know. Very often, very often, these 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 books you look, and the photographs are all taken with 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 electric light, and so you don't get
1: that particular magic which you do get from uh, from daylight. And there must be some, uh, you know, there's so many uh, amazing craftsmen and techniques that kind of went into this house over the you know, through their extreme wealth and o- over time, things that probably couldn't be done today without, uh, you know, incredible expense. Is there anything as, as as sort of a, you know, as a designer where you're like, oh gosh, if I could import this one technique or this one, is it that paneling, that sort of amazing wood paneling that you wish you could the paneling, easily... uh,
0: yeah, yeah, the paneling is wonderful. I, I wouldn't yeah i mean the, you know the the thing that i relate to as i said was the, was is the grisaille painting which which i do myself you know and i do it frightfully badly obviously and i just copy old things really um but 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 i like doing that myself and then i like carving myself you know and i carve carve things and i quite often carve out of resin instead of wood now cuz it carves much more smoothly <laughs> but um yeah no, I mean really, the things that the, the the extraordinary, extraordinary treasures, which are almost impossible to to do. Now they're not completely impossible, but almost impossible are, are the the embroidered beds, and and those embroidered beds, which, which are extraordinary, because one of them was made in Paris, in Louis XIV's workshop, you know, as a gift for Charles the Second, I think, um, and 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 so. You know, and so it's the sort of work that would have been on Louis XIV's beds at Versailles, at Marly, at all of his houses, none of which survive, because there they were all unlike, unlike in England, where all of these things were, were you know, it, taken as as perks of the job by the courtiers around the place. I don't think in France that happened. I think I think there was a sort of an equivalent of the Mobilier National at the time, who would just take things into store, and maybe they'd reuse the material, maybe they'd melt down the gold fringes. I don't know what happened to it, but they don't really survive. There's very little early French upholstery surviving. And so to see an entire bed with this incredible workmanship, I mean, it's just extraordinary. You know, the, it's embroidery that stands out by, by sort of two or three inches. It's just mad. These great lumps of incredibly detailed, absolutely beautiful embroidery and gold and silver thread. Incredible, yeah. Uh,
1: And and what would you want? You know, when someone sees, reads this book from cover to cover, what would you kind of want them to to really understand about Noel?
0: I no, I think the aim of the book really, and I think it succeeds, um, is is to to give. So I suppose it's to give a bit like the experience that people probably have. I'm terrible whenever I go to see a house or an exhibition or anything, and they're always trying to thrust those headsets onto you, aren't they? You know, oh, you have to listen to the audio guide. It's free. It's free. I'm like, you know, I would pay not to have to listen to an audio guide. I want to walk around and just. You know, imagine what things are and find out for myself. I don't want to be told, um, which is terribly pretentious of me and very stupid, I'm sure. Um, but but I just, I, I, I enjoy discovering stuff on my own. Um, it, but but this book, it, it probably is rather like a very good, very lengthy version of that experience where you are walking around the house and being told the history of it by the man who knows it best as the descendant of all of the people in the history. Um and and I think Robert's done a fantastic job of, of telling the story of the house and the family concurrently, and 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 has also done a brilliant job of of putting it together with the pictures that I took because so I just sort of roamed around and took pictures that interested me, um, and occasionally he'd send me a list saying you know you must get you know Lady Betty Germain her portrait is over the whatever door, you know. But but most of the time I just I just took snaps. Um, but, but he's he's managed to edit it in such a way that it, it, it really reads beautifully and, and, and you kind of go through the house and through the history of the house while
1: going through the book. It, it is rather marvelous, I think. Thank you to Lord Sackville, Ashley Hicks and everyone at Rizzoli for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.